This is an OSV Podcasts production. To learn more about OSV Podcast Network, visit osvpodcasts.com. This episode is being brought to you by Unbound. Founded by lay Catholics and grounded in Catholic social teaching, Unbound helps you put your faith into action by walking with an individual in poverty through sponsorship. Start walking with your new friend by sponsoring today at unbound.org forward slash places. That's unbound.org forward slash places. We were lost. We couldn't find our way. And there's like these tubes that you move in and out of. I know that sounds really weird. Sounds like Futurama. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I, they were just around the escalator. It like, was terrifying. It, I was in high school. through the tubes like the... No, it's like, like an bank? escalator. No, oh. it would be cool <laughs> if it did. Pneumatic tubes. <laughs> yeah. And so this is the always, only time I went way, to France. I was, always think of the Holy Spirit when I go to the bank because of the, the pneumatic tubes. Oh, the pneuma. Oh, yeah. yeah. The I do not think suck of suck up your the Holy Spirit yeah, when I go yeah. to the bank. Nothing. So that's how you were being transported in the airport yep, when all of a sudden. <laughs> 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 this is my only time I've spent in France. It was like two hours. It was at Charles de Gaulle Airport. And so it's two uh, hours more than I spent. Yeah. In France. <laughs> well, and so in those two hours, it hit almost every bad trope and stereotype that I've ever encountered about the French. <laughs> That reminds, Here, that reminds me of Vatican I. That reminds me of Vatican One's legacy, which actually did play out mostly in France. In France, yeah. 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 So, Can I just tell a quick French, my absolutely. French counter story? So after the world meeting of families in 2015 in Philadelphia, you know, you've just spent this whole time out on the Benjamin Franklin Parkway waiting for the Pope, and then mass happens. I think I was out there seven, eight hours. Hungry as all get out. So a group of us find an establishment in the city that's still serving late night meal we sit down and of course there's catholics everywhere because one million people have showed up for mass with the pope and there's a group of people from france and almost immediately when we struck up a conversation with them i became friends with them because somehow it came up that i knew the poet charles begui who is like code in their inner circles for like you're a good catholic if you know begui oh yeah now begui's <laughs> important in some ways because he's in the background of all these french thinkers he's the yeah. artistic side so anyway halfway through this conversation with them they start telling stories about all the protests they've been and then they start one up in each other like yes the french government has a file on me no they have like a bigger file on me and i have been gassed this many times the protest and they're, they're like all of them have cigarettes in their mouth and I was like, this cannot get any more French. I've never been part of a conversation where they were trying to say, like, no, no, the government has been surveilling me and has gasped me more than you. And I am a bit there. <laughs> <laughs> This is the 10,000 Places podcast, where we look for Christ in 10,000 places. Where would we go? What will we find? Hopefully Jesus. So thank you listeners for joining us. This is not a podcast on French stereotypes. This is a podcast. But I want to make one on French. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you go with God, my friend. I'll find another podcast. Um, but yeah, this is a podcast about faith, culture, Catholicism. The 10,000 Places the Podcast. The 10,000 Places Podcast. And we are doing a series on Vatican II. Which you probably already figured out from that French opening. <laughs> which now it sounds like I'm talking about tennis. But about... <laughs> <laughs> I'm Alex Giltner. I'm Justin Aquila. I'm Lewis Pearson. And it only took us seven minutes to get to the introduction. 
Well, it's still shorter than the amount of time it's taken us to get to Vatican II. That's true. I got one thing I wanted to add. Yeah. There's a phrase from the French. It's pas du pain, pas du dîner. No bread, no meal. Mm. We have taken a version of that that it's not just our family, but no prayer, no meal. Nice. Right? And I think the same can be said about Vatican II, right? No Vatican I, no Vatican, no Vatican II. II. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'll hold to all three of those, actually. Mm. Yeah. No bread, no meal. No prayer, no meal. Yeah. No Vatican I, no Vatican II. I adhere. Yeah. So here's a collage of French-themed openings that we could use for our Vatican I legacy episode leading into Vatican II. Now, why are we doing that? Well, because most of this is going to take place amongst French people. (laughs) That's not to say that nothing was going on in other places, but we're going to focus on the French people, and particularly the Ressourcement movement. So this is the period post-Vatican I, so ends 1870, leading into... Right. So 1879, we talked about this a couple episodes ago, Leo XIII promulgates the encyclical Aeterni Patris, which argues that Thomas is basically the prized account from the tradition. And this is post-Vatican I, which never got closed officially right? Mm-hmm. because they were worried about the invasion that's coming into Right. And so we have, in between Vatican I and Vatican II, the Great War, World War II, the Great Depression, we have just the big things that have yeah. characterized the yeah. modern era as oh, we yeah. know today. Oh, yeah. Yep. And in this interim, we're focusing in on what happens. Yeah, in I France. mean, in America, yeah. Yeah. like before Leo the Thirteenth's papacy is over, we like settled the West, mm-hmm. <laughs> and all the cowboy stuff happened. Yep. Yeah, the um, progressive movement, not the modern progressive movement, but the whole industrial revolution has happened. The progressive right. movement, which is responding to the exploitation and abuses of workers that was brought about by the industrial right. revolution. And during this period, the church still maintains this kind of bulwark mentality, mm-hmm. this kind of like we're a bunker. We're stealing ourselves against the modern world, against the Protestant world, against the secular world. So you have the papacy of Leo XIII, which is a very, very complicated papacy, and it was super long. It's like the second longest, I think, might even be the longest. Yeah. JP2 is one JP2's of the longest. JP2 third, so. And Leo XIII is yep. one or two. Yeah. So some, some people count Peter in there, so it's like, okay, just chill. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Leo XIII, and then after him is Pius X, This is when the modernist heresy actually happens. It's clearly defined, which is it's kind of a cover for all the modern ideas that we've been talking about that are problematic to the church. But it specifically is targeted at historicism and overly reductive historical reads of the Bible and tradition. And that's important for when the Novel Theology comes along, because they're going to fall into that even though they're not doing that. And to say one thing about how long this bulwark mentality lasts, I saw it was like a 60 Minutes episode some years ago now maybe 15 years old, there's an American journalist asking, there's this problem in Italy where young people are having a hard time finding mates because guys want to go clubbing and then marry someone who's just like mom. (laughs) And the journalist was talking to an Italian government official and asking, you know, what's contributed to this culturally, this odd machismo culture and these, these other things that are leading to these problems with the young making families. And he said something that sounded like a, just sort of a non sequitur. He said, well, you know, the Industrial Revolution happened, but maybe it's a dream. And we wake up tomorrow, <laughs> and we're just working on the farm. <laughs> I tell you, a government official on 60 Minutes. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
So this is this uh, is this sounds, is Italian. This yeah. is <laughs> into just how they're formed and what they think about. You know, this is how I live my life. Maybe this is a dream. Yeah. We'll wake up and Trent just happens. <laughs> <laughs> we got the Tridentine liturgy back. I do have to point out, like, because this is part of my family history too. Like, Italy was not a nation state until after Vatican One. So, so mm. yeah, it really is just a set of regional territories with different languages or different dialects. Is probably a better way to put that. So Italy becomes Italy in between Vatican I and Vatican II, right? Yeah, I mean, the way I understand it, because I get all my history from the Godfather movies, <laughs> is, is, <unjust>. that, <laughs> is that Italy at this time is, until the nation-state thing, just a loose conglomerate of things run by dons, right, which are right, basically right, right. drug and crime cartels. Right. And I know this because the little bit of Italian that I know that was passed on through the generations means nothing to people who speak Italian today. Really? And my family so they came, came over, over with a different, in the 1890s yeah, yeah. with the regional dialect. And basically what they did apparently is they took Dante's Italian, kind of like Shakespeare's English, Dante's Italian becomes normative across Italy in this period. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. All right, cool. So, a lot's going on, and we're going to cover, like, small stuff, and the stuff we're going to cover could themselves be series of episodes. But anyway, yeah, by the time you get through Pius X, there's a reason why, when the Lefebvre's get going, they want to name their society after Pius X. Yeah. Because he becomes this champion of, we reject everything modern. Anything that even stinks of modernism, it is out the door. He gets the Code of 1917 going. He dies before it can be right. done. Fifteenth like, like finishes it. it. Yeah. yeah, but he has his own syllabus of errors, mm -hmm. you know, which includes like ninety propositions from modern thought that are condemned, and so that leads to Benedict the Fifteenth, who on the feast day of Dominic, in his I think it's an encyclical, Fausto Apetente Dei, yeah, says that. The church has made the teaching of Thomas her own, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. this is like the heyday of Neo-Thomism. Kloetgen, if you remember that guy, Joseph Kloetgen and his whole ilk, along with Leo XIII, have really just been successful in this Neo-Thomistic reform. But the problem is, as it was always, it never stopped being the problem, was that, one, there are some ideas that have been explored and realized in the modern period that need to be addressed. And I'm not just thinking about our conversation like two days ago or whatever. No, uh, I wasn't. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay. All right. You had a little glint in your eye. I was like, no, I'm not. This is not that. I was thinking about Italian men clubbing. <laughs> I just love... We've left Lewis five minutes ago. I know, I know. I, I just, I imagine, like, we're, like, having this serious conversation, and then you, like, look at Lewis, he's got this thoughtful look on his face, and then the thought love cloud that. goes up, and it's like a rabbit driving a car in the circus going, like... That's accurate. Yeah. <laughs> so, so... <laughs> so a there's rejection of all modern things. Yeah, that you can't do it. You can't do it. There's no disco without modern things, so that's a problem. Yeah, there's no Star Wars without modern <laughs> things. So you can't do that. And the other problem is that Thomas, for all the goodness that he is, and I would say this about any of my heroes, mm -hmm. Augustine, Bonaventure, he can't answer everything. Yeah. The church is larger than all of her saints. Yes. Which is why she has many saints. Many so. saints. Yeah. And no saint. Even if some got closer than others, no saint and theologian and doctor has ever laid out all the church's teaching and thinking on anything yep. and never will. Yep. Unless you want to say Jesus did that in the Gospels. Maybe what's one example of a modern idea 
or a concept that Thomism doesn't adequately respond to. I think that a perfect example of this is the crucial centrality of subjectivity. Mm-hmm. And by this, I don't mean relativism. This is pure JP2 right here. Yep. I mean, this is good JP2 thought. The subjective experience of the person is very real. And it has something to do with the objective order of reality. So it's not saying that things are relativist, but every person is their own world Mm -hmm. with an entire network of experiences that are infinitely complex and networked through a just complete prism of various ways of, I feel like I'm just throwing language on language because personhood is so mysterious and subjectivity is, I would say, by the definition of the word, the experience of being a particular person Mm -hmm. or a particular subject. Even the subjectivity of a dog is a deeply infinite experience, even though it's not rational, right? And so the modern turn to the subject, which we talked about a lot several Mm -hmm. episodes ago, It had a lot of terrible things that came from it, a lot of baggage, a lot of problematic stuff, including relativism, including nihilism. But it was an important thing to come in the scene. And I don't know that people – people clearly had subjective experiences before Descartes. But it just didn't register the same way that it does after the turn to the subject. And what JP2 does, he's a great example of the kind of thing that we're looking for post-Vatican II, is he takes that modern idea – and he says, okay, problems? Sure. You know, phenomenology is a very subjective philosophy. He says, but I can work with this. And in fact, he uses his own training in Thomism and such mm-hmm. to work into it and come up with his personalism, which is very phenomenological, even though I would not call it a phenomenology philosophy. Mm-hmm. Sure. And to add to that, I think, you know, a neo-Thomist might look for resources in Thomas, and there are. You can always find something. Mm-hmm. But it might not be enough to deal with how protracted a problem it is for certain people. Say, for instance, in the Summa Theologiae, Prima Pars, question one, I forget which article, article two or three, it's before the five ways. Mm-hmm. Like most people who it's went to Catholic high school, they learned the, the, the five proofs yeah. for God's sacred, sacred doctrine. Thomas, he asked the question, is God self-evident? Yes. Secundum say, according to itself, it's self-evident. And I like to think in terms of a proof in calculus. Is the proof evidence of its own truth? And the short answer is yes. But the next question is, yeah, but do you get it? Yeah. Quod mm-hmm. nos, to us, do we see the proof in calculus and see that it is evidence of its own truth? Well, not if you're not trained in calculus. I like don't, a five-year-old yeah. doesn't yeah, get it. So, calculus, yep. <laughs> yeah, and so th- this is what Thomas says. He says, secundum se, according to itself, God is self-evident. But quod nos, to us, well, it depends on who you are. Mm-hmm. Do you actually mm-hmm. understand the evidence you're looking at? And so there are resources a Thomist can look at and say, well, he's seeing how it is things to us don't always map on to the way things are. But you might have someone who's so far gone into the turn of the subject that that's not enough. Like you don't have enough resources there to really reach this person who sees an entire culture changed around him mm-hmm. to, I think, effectively address his problem. Like an example you brought up before, the right tool for the right job. Yeah. You don't want to use the back end of a claw hammer when you could just use a screwdriver. It's just going to be much more efficient to use something better. Absolutely. There are tools that modernism bequeaths that are very, very helpful in understanding the great mystery that were not known to the scholastics. And there are people who are so deeply entrenched into modernist thought because they've been formed that way Mm -hmm. that when they're given the clear truths that have been discovered in the scholastic or just larger classical and Catholic intellectual tradition, they don't recognize them. They don't know Mm -hmm. what they mean. Mm -hmm. So there's like two kinds of a spectrum of that. 
which you have to be conversant with the present culture and not just in a purely critical way if you are going to meet people and help people mm -hmm. where they're at. And one more example to add there, Ratzinger and the historical critical method. This method is a modern method, mm -hmm. and in many ways it would be alien yeah. to what the medievals would do, and there's a lot of problems with it, but Ratzinger uses it in such a way to show those problems up and move beyond. It's amazing. Yeah, so him with historical critical method, it's just watching a master at work. Yeah, so Domini Verbum, it was an address. Uh, I don't post apostolic know. exhortation okay. for the conclusion of the Synod of the Word of God in yeah. 2005. So Justin is our resident Ratzinger expert, <laughs> and I love it. And I say that with absolute pride. He's amazing. And he has corrected me on Ratzinger, which I am very thankful for. But I mentioned this. Not on his thought, though, just <laughs> facts about his life. Okay. Yeah, but, I got the biography stuff down. <laughs> yeah, right. But this helped me because I am a kind of person who thinks, well, if it's only 200 years old, who cares? Mm -hmm. That's well, my weakness. So with Ratzinger, the historical critical method, if the listener doesn't know what that is, it's, well, we're going to look at the texts that we find and try to interpret on our own lights what we think the original author meant or yeah. who it was or what school it came from. So How was the text put together? Yeah, what were its previous sources? So the tradition says the Apostle John wrote this book, but who cares about the tradition? Well, I'm going to be quote-unquote scientific about this yeah. and look at the manuscript. So in many ways, I just am allergic to the historical critical method. And so it takes someone like a Ratzinger to rehabilitate for me why this method can actually show things. And so his Jesus of Nazareth Part 1 was my introduction to his use of the historical yeah, critical yeah. method yeah. Yeah, to that's, support that's traditional... And that's someone who, yeah. for me, I had no problem jettisoning all the modern stuff. Yeah. Right. But it was Ratzinger who could show me how to engage the people who are in the midst of that and say, look, you guys who are doing this, this is what you got wrong. My rejection of them would have no purchase on their work. They wouldn't care that people like me reject them. But someone like Ratzinger who gets them from the inside out and shows them, no, you did it wrong. Mm -hmm. And I would say that Ratzinger's vision is even larger than that, too. He mm. actually does think there are good things in the historical critical method. Yeah. Sure. It's yeah. not just using it to show that they're wrong or to find people who are really entrenched in historicism. It's also because the modern historical critical method actually does give us good things, tools, and ideas about how to understand history. Yep. And yep. so in he Domini did, Verbum, yeah. Sorry. just real quick, he says, actually, the... Theological question upon us right now is how do you marry the theological interpretive method with the historical critical interpretive method yeah, of yeah. understanding scripture? Yeah. And then he said, that's what you guys need to work on. Right. And then a few he, years later, he, he said, well, if you guys are going to do it, then I guess I will. And he writes <laughs> Jesus of Nazareth, yeah, yeah, yeah. which actually does what he's talking yeah. about because he's he a bottler. Yeah. He's a beast. This episode is being brought to you by Unbound. Our family loves Unbound. So far, we've sponsored two children through this organization, one in Mexico and another in the Philippines. We've been able to exchange letters, drawings, and photographs, and it has been a blessing to see the good our sponsorship does for these children and their families, as well as a great witness to my own family of the fruits of putting one's faith into action through sponsorship. You're invited to put your Catholic faith into action by walking with a child, youth, or elder through sponsorship. Start walking with your new friend today at unbound.org forward slash places. I think it's maybe two points here. One is the historical critical method functionally comes out of this modernist strain, mm -hmm. and it did in many ways divorce faith. And Rossiger is trying to say, let's take the spoils from Egypt here. What are the ways in which we can pull good things out of here, but we cannot divorce the interpretation of Scripture from the interpretation of faith? And so you see how 
dear listener, especially for those of you who are maybe a little bit more minded like Lewis, who, what do we need this for? And why don't we just reject it and move on? And that's what the Thomists were saying. Ratzinger is a great example. JP2 is a great example. So is Augustine. Mm-hmm. Everybody was saying, we don't need this Neoplatonist stuff. Yeah. We don't know the, we need the Stoic stuff, the Ciceronian stuff. Even Why are you reading? What does yeah. Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Right. Why are yeah. you reading these guys? And Augustine, like many of his forebears and many people after, uses that despoiling the Egyptians metaphor from Scripture exactly that way. I find what is true in them and how it helps support and understand what I already know to be true in the revelation of faith. Mm-hmm. Right. There are many strengths to this period, but a weakness of this period post-Vatican I that is in some ways supported by the things leading up to Vatican I and some of the ways that Vatican I is interpreted is this notion that we don't need anything from the Egyptians. And there's a sense in which that could be true, but if you want to say there's nothing of value in the Egyptians, that is not true. Yeah. And so Vatican II is in a spirit that does assume there are things that we can learn from the modern period. And so the kind of push of the neo-Thomistic legacy of Vatican I is just complete rejection and suppression of anything modern. Which is maybe different from what the church is doing in some ways in Vatican I is let's draw boundaries around this. Right. Like that's why I said— an appropriate right, right. That's why I said Vatican I does not support yep, yep. these things, but there were people who wrote parts of Vatican I who clearly did. Yeah. This is where you get someone like Gary Lagrange, who is very admirable in many ways. And, you know, he's not like Joseph Kloikin, who was like a sociopathic monster. <laughs> he's a good man who loves Jesus. He's got some questionable views about Jews and Nazi Germany. But he's a good man. That probably sounds really weird to a modern audience <laughs> to say that in one sentence. But he loves Jesus. He's trying to protect the church. And... He sees lots of people who are utilizing methods that look like the modernist methods to him. And so I think we're getting this kind of I'm getting it kind of backwards because you need to back up before Gary Lagrange and say, what's going on? People are realizing that the neo-Thomistic interpretation of the tradition is not sufficient. And so there's this group of theologians, and there are a ton of them. Not all of them who even agree with each other. Right, that are going to split in many ways after Vatican II. And so, yeah, we're talking about the later progressive people, the Concilium School, Yves Congar, who he was really good until Mm -hmm. later on. But then other people who maybe never were that great, like Hans Kuhn, (laughs) Rahner, uh, Mm -hmm. Boltmann, who wasn't Catholic, of course, but he's actually part of this sort of larger existentialist historical or anti-historical movement. All these people who are kind of going down this one path. And then on the other side of it, you've got these other scholars that are very important. De Lubac. Blondel is is, is key. And then, yeah, De Lubac and Balthazar. De Lubac student. Right. A little bit later is Ratzinger. Ratzinger, he's not quite a part of them, but he's Mm -hmm. definitely learning from them, and he's somewhat concurrent with them. These are people, too, who are not... Well, there's maybe a difference, too. De Lubac, Balthazar... They are studying Thomas. Like they are deeply rooted in Thomas and then kind of springing off. De Lubach Thomas. more than Balthazar, but yeah. yeah. Whereas like Rossinger and Waitiwa, well, Waitiwa probably a little bit more has a history of Thomas. Actually, I would actually say Waitiwa and De Lubach are more on the Thomistic side okay. and Ratzinger and Balthazar actually more on a Bonaventurian side. Yes. Rossinger does his dissertation on his first one on Augustine, second one on Bonaventure. Right. So and then, he's not touching Thomas at all. Right. No, and he knows Thomas, because anybody would, but yeah. 
Yeah. So my point there is just it's not that these people don't know Thomas. Right. Well, and so this is actually the key. So or th- even maybe like him. They like him, too, in some ways. Right. Well, yeah, I would say de Lubac would have considered himself a Thomas. Mm-hmm. So would Chanu. So, I mean, listener, you're probably hearing us throwing around other names. What's going on here? Well, basically, another group of people said, hold on a second. Hang on a tick. I'm a Newton bitte. Um, <laughs> you can't you can't just it's the French episode. Keep the German out. I know. Right. <laughs> I don't. Un moment. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. <laughs> they're looking at this and they're saying, OK, basically what you've done is you've said all we need is Thomas to understand the tradition and all we need is Thomas to understand our own experiences and all we need is Thomas to destroy all the modern thought, and we don't need anything from the modern thought at all. Mm-hmm. And they said, that can't be right. <laughs> and so what they started doing is they started going back and looking through the lens of faith, but also the lens of history at the scriptures and at the traditions, particularly the patristics, so the early church fathers, and then later the doctors. And they started to say, hold on a second, you're neo thomistic interpretation not only gets the tradition wrong, it actually gets Thomas wrong in key ways that are deeply, deeply important. And so they call themselves a part of a big movement called the resourcement, the resourcement, or sometimes this is called ad fontes, going back to the sources. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to go back to the sources, understand them on their own terms, like the historical method, and then understand how they have come to us and so how we should formulate our theology as an ongoing explanation. Not just learn Thomas and then think you know all the tradition, but learn the whole tradition and then you can better understand Thomas, yep. mm-hmm. who is in the tradition. Yep. Yep. Now, the Neotomas don't like this, <laughs> and they're led by Gary Goulagrange in a charge against this, and these people pejoratively call it the nouvelle théologie. And they're mostly aimed at the new theology, theology, which, listener, you probably know, but the new theology is bad because everything in theology should be old. (laughs) There should be no new theology. Everything should be old. And so it was a pejorative, but it kind of stuck. And the nouvelle théologie is a smaller group than the ressourcement, which is huge. The nouvelle théologie is mostly going to concern de Lubac, Congar, Chenu, these kinds of thinkers. Ratzinger, Balthazar is kind of on the edge of it, but they're close to it. So they're saying there's this new theology that is just swallowing the camel of modernism whole and totally misrepresenting everything and ruining it for all of us who just want to play in the backyard. And don't get rid of that part. I don't know where it came from. <laughs> so next time, what's on the docket for this next episode? Yeah. Like the Fellowship of the Ring. We're still walking. We're not quite there yet. Right. Mordor's a little bit longer from here. <laughs> well, Mordor let's not too. call. Yeah, let's, yeah. Not, let's not do that. Minas Tirith, I don't know. Alex is out of himself as a tratty. I know, right? No, I love that. Hey, I love Vatican too. Love it. This mm. has been the 10,000 Places podcast. Thank you for listening. Yeah, and I'd say in this episode we went actually not that many places. Yeah. I'm Alex Gildner. <laughs> I'm Justin Aquila. <laughs> I'm Lewis Pearson. And uh, dear listeners, thank you for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can uh, go to 10,000PlacesPodcast, all spelled out at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This episode was brought to you by Unbound. Founded by lay Catholics and grounded in Catholic social teaching, Unbound helps you put your faith into action by walking with an individual in poverty through sponsorship. Start walking with your new friend by sponsoring today 
at unbound.org forward slash places. That's unbound.org forward slash places. This has been a production of OSV Podcasts. To learn more, visit osvpodcasts.com.